Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, November 14th, 2021, and this is show number 862. This week, our grandkids both got colds, and in these times, the sniffles and coughs get you sent right home from school and daycare. Lindsay and Nolan had really tough schedules, so they set up a flare asking for uh, emergency assistance. Steve and I happily jumped into the car on Tuesday morning and came to their rescue. Now, I'm not telling you this to suggest that either of us qualifies for Grandparent of the Year, because that reward actually goes to their other grandmother, who recently took care of them both for three days straight all by herself. Anyway, I am telling you this because I knew it was going to be virtually impossible for me to write up any content for this week's show, and so I sent up my own emergency flare, and the community, as always, came to my rescue. In fact, so many people created content that I get to save one for next week. This week, we have Troy Shimkus, Mike Price, Jill from the Northwoods, all with their own reviews and tips, and then we've got Barpu Shots with security bits to round out an extra-long show. You know, I always hear other podcasters say that they have the best community, but I beg to differ. The Docilla Castaways rock. Bart had a vision that certain things we would learn in phase two of programming by stealth would be taught by guest lecturers. I thought he was bananas that this would ever work. Like, how would you get anybody to do it? Who could step into his shoes? That would be way too hard. But Helma van der Linden, also known as Helma from the Netherlands, stepped up to teach us about coding linters and specifically ESLint in this week's edition of Programming by Stealth. In this installment, she explains what linters are and why they're useful. Even though she's not technically fond of them, she believes in linters because of what they can do for a coding team. Once she sells us on the idea of having a linter, she walks us through how to install ESLint inside the development environment of VS Code. From there, she explains style guides and shows us how to install and use the very popular Airbnb style guide. She gives us tips on usage and even how to override the linter's demands. I think it was incredibly courageous of her to try to fill Bart's shoes, and I think she did a fantastic job both in the podcast recording and in her detailed written show notes, which are, of course, available over at bartificer.net. Hello, Castaways. This is Troy coming to you from Deltona, Florida, with a review on some wireless lapel mics. So the problem to be solved here was that I wanted to make some videos about a community garden project I manage in my city of Deltona, Florida. So I decided I was going to start a garden bed, having never gardened before, and do a video diary of the process. Of course, this means I need to get some shiny new tech to accomplish this project. I have several tripods of various heights and features, and I have some wired handheld mics that I've used for some other projects, but this is going to be all outdoor video around a community garden setup. So the immediate two challenges were how to get good stable video and clear audio while recording outdoor activities. I've played with some drones in the past, and one came with a handheld gimbal setup for the drone camera, so I thought that could be an option, but it didn't have any audio options and didn't mount to a tripod, so time to buy some stuff. Of course, the first place I check is podfeet.com to see what other castaways have found and get some ideas. Definitely a lot of good mic recommendations there. I've bought a headset and a desk mic, the ATR2100 I'm using to record this overall review based on articles there, but nothing quite right for what I was looking for. True to my form, I either do things on a whim of impatience or I wait too long, overanalyze, and never do it. This adventure was definitely going to be in the former category. It was late on a Thursday, and I happened to have Friday off, so I want to start this project on a Friday. I first thought, what does the local Best Buy have? I can run down there first thing Friday and pick up some things. 
Well, they didn't have much to work with for either handheld gimbals or wireless mics for iPhone that I could see. So let's check Amazon. It's now like 11.30 at night, and I want to see what I can get from Amazon by 7 a.m. the next morning. For a gimbal setup, they had the DJI OM4 available for overnight, and that for me was kind of a no-brainer. The price was right at $149, so in the cart it goes. There were some interesting lower-priced options, but for this, I was going with a brand I had experience with, and it was only $50 more than the completely unknown brand options that I saw. Now on to the mic and the true subject of this review. I needed a wireless mic option for the iPhone 11 Pro. I do have a pair of AirPods, and I did some testing with those. While certainly passable, the quality just wasn't where I wanted it to be for this project that will probably span over 8 weeks in at least one video a week. So I looked up some lavalier mic options. Again, they must arrive by 7am. This is of course the most critical requirement that some little annoying voice in the back of my head is trying to tell me is just going to cost me more when I don't get what I like and I have to buy something new in another week. But we don't listen to that voice. So two options bubble to the top. The Husemot, that's H-U-U-S-M-O-T, that system comes in about $89.99. This one comes with two mics and one receiver, so it could be a good for interviewing people down in the gardens. This unit has rechargeable batteries, comes with all the bits and bobs needed to connect to the lightning port of a standard or standard headphone jack, all in a nice carrying case. So not too bad overall. The Alvoxcon is next up. It's a wireless mic for iPhone and computer and comes in at $63.74. This one has a little bit of a different design. The receiver connects via a USB-A and looks like it's one of those early USB Wi-Fi adapters or one of those early big jump drive things. Just a little chunky, but comes with a USB-A to lightning adapter and a USB-A to USB-C adapter for use with Android. Although I can see some other uses for that little gem, perhaps. I'm looking at you, iPad Pro. This unit comes with two mic options. One's a little stub mic that comes directly off the transmitter, and the other is more traditional lapel mic on a long cable. The receiver and transmitter are both about the size of like a car key fob, with the transmitter being more rounded and oval shaped, with a clip and a little antenna sticking out. Both units were very easy to set up and use. You just turn them on and they connect automatically. There were no issues getting them to be seen by the iPhone for recording, and both are rechargeable via mini USB. I haven't used either in enough length to test for battery life, but reports on both give it around four to six hours of use, which is plenty for anything I would need. Right out of the box without changing any settings on either device, I ran a couple of tests for comparison. For giggles, I googled microphone test script, found some interesting results. So I'll be using a set of test phrases from the appendix of <clears throat> IEEE Subcommittee on Subjective Measurements, IEEE Recommended Practices for Speech Quality Measurements, out of the IEEE Transactions on Audio and Electroacoustics, Volume 17, pages 227 through 46, 1969. I found that on the Columbia University website, so I feel very official with that. I'm going to test each of the mic options, AirPods, Alvoxcom, and Husemot, with a tripod set up outdoors, since that will be the primary use case for this project. There were many different mic test phrase groupings on the Columbia site, so I just picked one that looked interesting to me. I'm recording the review on a separate mic so that the difference between the three test cases can be heard more clearly. These recordings are also coming out of a video recorded by the MIMO app from DJI that came with the OM4 handheld gimbal, since again, that's going to be the primary use case for me. First up are the AirPods. The small pup gnawed a hole in the sock. The fish twisted and turned on the bent hook. Press the pants and sew a button on the vest. The swan dive was far short of perfect. The beauty of the view stunned the young boy. 
Two blue fish swam in the tank. Her purse was full of useless trash. The colt reared and threw the tail rider. It snowed, rained, and hailed the same morning. Read verse out loud for pleasure. Now the Alvaxcon. The small pup gnawed a hole in the sock. The fish twisted and turned on the bent hook. Press the pants and sew a button on the vest. The swan dive was far short of perfect. The beauty of the view stunned the young boy. Two blue fish swam in the tank. Her purse was full of useless trash. The colt reared and threw the tall rider. It snowed, rained, and hailed the same morning. Read verse out loud for pleasure. And finally, the Hughesmott. The small pup gnawed a hole in the sock. The fish twisted and turned on the bent hook. Press the pants and sew a button on the vest. The swan dive was far short of perfect. The beauty of the view stunned the young boy. Two blue fish swam in the tank. Her purse was full of useless trash. The colt reared and threw the tall rider. It snowed, rained, and hailed the same morning. Read verse out loud for pleasure. So first impressions are that the AirPods are pretty decent, but the general tone and quality isn't what I would want for a long-term project, but definitely an option in a pinch. The Alvaxcon has a little too much noise in the background, I think, and cut out a few times, so I'm thinking this one wasn't really worth the buy. The setup also is kind of wonky, given the receiver sticking out on the side of the iPhone can easily hit the gimbal as it moves and affects the overall balance as well. Not a great design for this use case, and the USB-A to lightning adapter is already coming apart. The sleeve is loose and comes right off. Not really a huge deal, but pretty disappointing for just a test use. The Hughesmont, I think, has the best overall quality for the price. And the much more traditional setup works better with the gimbal given it's just a cable coming off the iPhone. The only issue here is that the cable connecting the receiver needs to be secured somewhere around the tripod. During the test recording, I had it kind of resting on the tripod. As the gimbal moved to follow me, it fell off. But it didn't appear to impact the recording very much, so that's okay. I think the overall quality of the Hughesmont is closest to the quality I was looking for, even if it's on the quiet and muffled side. There's a volume button on the transmitter, but that was set to the highest level, so this one will probably require more post-processing for the final products. Something I need to practice anyway, so win-win. While this isn't ideal for anything approaching a professional need, for this very amateur project, I think it's a great option, and a great price too. Remember, this one has two mics, so now I can do interviews with other gardeners down at the community gardens, which I'm really looking forward to. So there you have my review of a few options for wireless mics to use with an iPhone. I've already posted the first video in my diary series about starting a garden bed, so I'm off to a great start. Thanks for listening. Well, I've got a little confession to make about Troy's uh, review. I actually, uh, he actually sent me this review back in June and I missed it. So when Troy heard me talking about needing reviews, he said, well, you know, did the one I sent you, was that not any good? And I felt terrible because of course I loved it. Anyway, I asked him how that project came along because it has been several months and uh, he did start on YouTube, but he ended up moving the videos to a private Facebook group dedicated to the project. So I was able to capture an audio clip from one of his videos that shows how with just a little bit of processing, mostly noise reduction and increased gain made the HughesMod sound perfect for this task. Let's listen to how excited he is about his beans in this particular clip. I think these are the pea plants. This is where I'm gonna have to get some help because I am realizing that I don't know the difference between what is a weed and what is the actual plant. 
I can tell these some grass that I have to remove, I'm sure. But I think I also have some beans coming in. And especially this one over here is looking pretty good. Look at those beans. That's going to be a strong plant, it looks like, for sure. <laughs> okay, I hope you appreciated that. I wanted to do that because the uh, original recording they did, that he did on the Hughes mod didn't sound great. But when you th listen to it when he's actually outside at a garden, you can hear he's walking and everything. I think it sounded really good and it was perfect for the task that he had. Thanks again for sending that, Troy. And next time, if I don't respond right away, ping me again and say, hey, did you see this? Because I would never intentionally ignore that. If I didn't like it, I'd tell you at least. <laughs> I feel terrible. Greetings, castaways. Grumpy here with a tiny tip that I call Hocus Focus. Let's begin with my original problem to be solved and some background. When I show up to church each week, I never want to end up being that person whose phone or watch starts making a ruckus in the middle of Mass. So for many years, I have used Do Not Disturb to keep my devices shushed, and I have loved the fact that when I set Do Not Disturb on my watch, it updates my phone as well. But, I never liked needing to remember to manually activate Do Not Disturb. When Apple introduced the Shortcuts app and personal automations on iOS, I thought I had my solution. But Apple has prevented location-based automations from running without intervention. Now, I understand the potential risk of automatically executing an automation solely based on location, but advanced users should be able to accept this risk for themselves. And the real kicker is that iOS does provide an override switch for exactly this kind of operation using other triggers like NFC. For the last several major and minor versions of iOS, I have been hoping that this restriction would be eliminated. But alas, even up through iOS version 15.1, my location-based automation that sets Do Not Disturb only gives me a pop-up when I pull into the parking lot. Why not let me decide, Apple? Ugh. However, all is not lost. One of the new features of iOS 15 is focuses, and a focus can be automatically controlled based on location only. So my teeny tiny tip is that you can modify the built-in Do Not Disturb focus to automatically turn on or off based on a particular location. So now, my Do Not Disturb will automatically enable when I arrive at church without any help from me. Finally. Now you may be thinking, that's nice, Grumpy, but I want to have my device automatically do something other than activate Do Not Disturb when I arrive at a location. Well, I have a little hack for that too. Since, as we have already covered, a focus can be controlled based on location without manual intervention, and since a focus changing state can be set as a trigger for personal automation, we can combine these to allow one to do pretty much anything based on location only without manual intervention. One downside of this trick is that a focus does not provide an allow all for notifications from people and apps. So my suggestion would be to just set the focus to have the default settings, since they won't matter in the end, as you'll see in a bit. To run a general purpose automation and shortcut, 
automatically based on location. First, create a custom focus and set that focus to automatically turn on based on the desired location. I should also note that since the focus is just a hack to get the personal automation to run without intervention, set it so that it is not shared across all of your devices. Then, in the Shortcuts app, create a personal automation with a trigger set to when the, auto, when the focus gets turned on. And the automation actions should be to first turn the focus off. Then execute your desired actions, including complex shortcuts. So there you go. Personal automations and shortcuts can now run automatically without intervention based solely on location. Thank you, Apple, though I'm not exactly sure this is what you intended. Well, thanks for that, Mike. Um, to the audience, after I heard this and I read his uh, his blog post, I explained to him that I'm not a shortcuts aficionado yet, and I haven't gotten the hang of the different focus mode options very well, so I really needed a bit more hand-holding in order to actually follow his instructions. So, using the documentation app Folge, he took some screenshots, annotated them, and added some written instructions, and he created step-by-step instructions for us if you want to try out his idea. After learning how to do it with his good instructions, I tried to use it to solve a kind of funny problem Steve and I have. Our dog Tesla loves staying with Nolan and Lindsay and their dog Dodger, and so when we go to leave, she hides under the dining room table, and we've actually almost forgotten to take her home more than once when we leave. So even with Mike's help, unfortunately, this hack didn't work for me because I needed it to be on leaving a place, not arriving. So every time I came back to their house, it would ask me, did you remember Tesla? Anyway, Mike gave me a much better idea. He said, just put an AirTag on Tesla and then the Find My Devices app would uh, tell me, they would give me a notification that would say, hey, you left, you left Tesla behind again. I think I'll give that a try because I do have one spare. Hello, everyone. This is Jill from the North Woods. You might not know this, but I really enjoy studying the Bible, and I do it quite a bit. And yes, there are software tools out there to help me get through this process. First of all, there are iOS apps that you can use on the iPhone and the iPad. One is called Olive Tree, and the other one's called Uversion. Both are very popular when it comes to this kind of task. But the thing that I use the most, something that's called Logos Bible Software, and it's a great tool when you're trying to study almost anything when it comes to the Bible. It was founded back in 1992 from two Microsoft employees. By 2009, on their version 4 software, which is where I started with this particular product, there's new versions coming out all the time. They're always improving things, even if it's performance, bugs, and new features. And I've been impressed with how much work goes into this software. There are versions for Windows, Mac, iOS, and Android, or you can just use it on the web. But let's first talk about the cost. You can go all the way up to $11,000, and what you get is 9,100 books built into this logo system, which is probably great if you are a scholar or an academic of some kind, but for most people, that is prohibitive. There is also a free version, and it comes with basic features, some maps, some indexing systems, and ways that you can learn about the Bible. It'll help you customize a reading plan, allow you to take notes, and do highlights of certain sections that you want. There is also a $100 version, 
which with most sales cost around $50. And from there, you get 25 reference books. They might be commentaries and different indexes and common tools that people like to use. Where I settled in on this product is the 294 version while it was on sale for much less. With this particular version, you can get a payment plan so you can afford it better. It comes with about 70 books and I have a few add-on packages as well. I'm Lutheran and there's a Lutheran package out there. There's also packages out there for Catholics, Jewish people, and all sorts of denominations and points of view when it comes to the Bible. I have to admit that I think that it gets overly pricey, particularly if you're going to upgrade the software frequently. I understand that software costs money to make. I work for a software company. I feel this is a little bit on the expensive side. And every time there's a new version, am I excited about it? Yeah, mostly. But most of the time, I'm just grimacing at the thought of the next price level. And when you get all these books built into your package system, what it does is it will index everything that you own so that when you click on a particular topic or click on a particular name, It'll take every tool and resource that you own and link them all together. That indexing can actually take hours to get done. I've had it take about 90 minutes on my own computer. One of the things I was delighted about is when I put it on my brand new 16-inch MacBook Pro with the M1 Pro chip. And you know what? It was so fast at indexing that volume that I thought it was broken. I was so impressed with how fast that was. It suddenly made me love my MacBook Pro even more. So the first thing you do when you're looking at this logo software is you can design your home screen. There's all sorts of things that can go onto the home screen. Things like upcoming books, interesting topics, today in history. You can have your Bible passage of the day. If you created a reading plan, it will have your reading plan right there for you so you can immediately pick it up. And it has sales, upcoming books, and other types of topics that you may be interested in. It has a light mode, a dark mode, and you can select colors on almost every aspect of the software. The other nice feature that it has is you can, of course, take notes. But this is the thing that's really exciting about it. There are a good number of people who love writing notes. Maybe they write it in the margins of their Bible. Maybe they have a notebook that they just love writing in. This software will allow you to take a screenshot of your handwritten notes and insert it into that passage area. So that way it accommodates people like me who just want to live in the digital world, but most other people who actually like writing things down with a real pen and real paper. What a neat feature. There's also deep studies in there too. For example, that you can actually look up about a particular topic that you're maybe interested in reading or a particular person that you're interested in reading more. And if you do look at passages, you can open it up in many different translations of the Bible. It was written in Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew. And so translations are a little tricky to do. Do you gain the cultural impact of them or do you translate it word for word? With this particular grid view, you can look at all the different translations that are there trying to get that full meaning from it. The translations are everything from very literal translations to more theme and cultural meanings of the particular passage. When looking for an interesting passage that had different meanings when you looked at different translations of the Bible, I noticed one of the translations of the Bible called someone an airhead. I'm pretty sure that's not original, but it probably captured the true meaning of the sentence. There is something that they call fact book, 
which allows you to highlight a particular topic, name, word, and it will tell you more information about it. It will show you the Hebrew word or the Greek word, depending on which language it was from. It'll show you maps, timelines, and any book that you own that relates to the particular topic you highlighted, it'll open up and let you link to it so that you can read your own resources about it. Maybe there are books you don't own that talks about this topic. Of course, it tells you about those too. It wants you to buy more books. And at the very end, it has external links where it'll show you Google Street View, it will show you Wikipedia entries, and other pieces of information about whatever it is you highlighted. It's really informational. It will help you with pronunciation. So if you're trying to run a podcast or do a sermon, you'll know how to say the word properly so that you don't look foolish in front of a whole group of people. They have something called the narrative character maps. And this is information about a particular person. And it goes across from left to right in order of time or events. The up and down has to do with other characters and location this person was going to. It can also show you what other people have made about that particular topic. If someone created some piece of art or a graphic for that, you can see that as well. It's easy then from the application to post it to social media or copy it for use in another app. And the nice thing is, is that every feature has a detailed video lesson on how to use this feature to its best ability. So the learning curve on such a large piece of software is not high. And the last of the features that most people would make use of is something that's called Workflow. And what it does is it dynamically generates a Bible study for you. So if you're interested in a particular passage or you're interested in a place or a person, you will create this particular workflow and it will bring you through a coursework of learning this topic. It'll first tell you about this particular passage or person, the basic details, and then it'll go through culture, history. It'll ask you questions so that you can fill in the answer, just as you might if you were studying this passage with a class. A really great way of learning something on your own, which will challenge you to dig deeper. And of course, there's advanced features, everything from scholarly reviews, Greek, Hebrew, and all sorts of details. You can even learn these languages through the product. There's a sermon builder that's there. There are many kinds of language references. And so you can look up to see exactly what the word is being used. For example, I heard that John the Baptist ate locusts, and for the most part, people believe that's bugs. Someone came out, and it, their understanding was it was actually locusts that was a nut. So I was able to go in, even though I don't speak Greek, look up the word that was used, and found out that it is, in fact, the bug. And for those advanced users, there's other types of coursework in there for counseling, how to help people through certain struggles, or other types of pastoral work that someone might use if they're in that profession. But what's also cool about all of this is that there's an iPad app, an iOS app, and an Android app to do some of the things that are in the bigger application. Obviously, it doesn't have that huge expanse of features like the desktop version of the software has, but if I want to read one of the books I bought inside the software, if I want to look up a quick detail, it's right there. And I can keep track of my reading plan on my iPad while I'm trying to sleep at night. So overall, I think it's a pretty fantastic piece of software. It's great for someone who's a professional, but someone like me who's just interested in topics, 
and potentially thinking about creating a religious podcast, it's wonderful. I get to dig in deep. I can get to put all my notes in one place and use that for building the things I'm working on. Again, I wish it wasn't so expensive, but to me, it's worth every dime. Thanks so much for listening to another review of a niche software product that I love to use every day. Again, this is Jill from the Northwoods. You can reach me at smallstepspod.com or email me at jill at smallstepspod.com or find me on Allison's Slack channel where I like to hang out. Well, thanks for that, Jill. Um, I do want to make sure everybody remembers something she said very close to the beginning. There is a free option for the Logo software, and she says it does do a lot. She just went in expanding into all the greater capabilities you can get as you pay more money. I really appreciate you doing this, Jill, and I love how participative you are in the Slack, and everybody should go over there and hang out with her at podfeet.com slash Slack. And you should definitely subscribe to her podcast, Start With Small Steps. It's a really, really terrific show, and, uh, and I love listening to it. And I mean, who can't smile when they're listening to that joyful voice? You know, I've really been enjoying calling out the longtime supporters of the NoSillaCast on Patreon. I started it because they deserve the recognition. But you know what? I'm staying fired up about it because many of them have written to me with fun little catch-up notes on what's going on with them just because I've called them out. A few weeks ago, I mentioned a very early contributor named Desmond. Every year or so, Desmond checks in and gives me a really fun update on the culture in Singapore. One of the many joys of doing the podcast has been learning about different cultures from all of you. When Desmond heard his name mentioned, he realized his annual update was long overdue, and so he sent me a nice chatty note. But that's not all he did. He also upped his contribution in Patreon by a lot. I am so grateful for his five years of support and for increasing his support to help pay the bills for the podcast. Now, I don't want to lose steam, so let me give a shout out to another set of four-year contributors. We've got Thomas Maddock, Tom Wickland, Robert Pither, Tim Gregoire, and Linda Goucher. Thank you, all you folks, for keeping the lights on all these years. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchot. How are you doing today, Bart? I am doing grand, actually. Um, I got to cycle with no wind for the first time in weeks, feels like. It's so <laughs> strange. Because I always cycle into the wind, and which means I've been really confined in where I have to cycle. And I looked at my weather app, and there was like no wind. It's like, I can go anywhere. Oh, no. I can go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> have to figure it out, right? Yeah. Uh, well, all right. It was a fun cycle. So that was good. good. All right, let's uh let's kick in then. Yeah, so we'll start with some follow-up uh, of recent stories. So last time we talked about this new trend of not only two-factor auth bypass where they attack you in real time to trick you into giving up your 30 second long code because you know, it will change after 30 seconds, but if they trick you, it, you know, and there's a leeway of plus or minus two codes. So that's plus or minus. Um, it's basically, it's it's not 30 seconds. It's about two and a half minutes in total. So there were people doing a real-time attack against high-value targets for their 2FA codes. Because, yeah, you know, you had to do it in real time. Right, but right. Now people have started to figure out ways of automating it. And, of course, as soon as bad guys figure out a way of automating something, they figure out a way of selling it as a service. So we talked last time about 2FA bypass as a service, and literally the next morning, Vice.com dropped a fantastic article 
going into some great detail about how this really works in the real world. So if you're interested, link in show notes uh, to the Vice article. So it's not even, it doesn't even have to talk to you as a human? I mean, the, the, you, the human being, has to be tricked. Right, but, but it I mean, doesn't there's have no to be human on the other side. Correct, correct. Okay. So one squishy organic, one squishy organic bit is sufficient. Uh, we also have talked a lot about our friends at the NSO Group, uh, and the U.S. Department of Commerce has added them to their U.S. entity list, which makes it illegal for U.S. firms to import, export, or trade their products. Yay! Yeah, I think so. So, yeah. Does does the EU have anything like that? I don't know, and I also I, I doubt it will be EU wide. Somehow, I think every country would do their own thing. And okay. I don't. It's interesting. It's an interesting thought. It is an interesting thought. I don't know was the honest answer, but now you got me curious. If I find anything out, I will follow back with a follow up next time. Okay. Um, Apple have been on the attack against side loading for some time. Uh, Craig Federighi uh, released another salvo. Uh, he gave what is described as an impassioned speech at the Web Summit in Lisbon. Uh, a lot of reporting on it. He did seem to get quite hot under the collar about the topic and seemed quite keen to stress the dangers involved. Uh, you know, nothing new, but, you know, they're continuing, that's for sure. So this was about uh, adding alternate uh, app stores onto the iPhone? Yeah, basically, don't force us to do this thing because it's darn dangerous. I'm Which is what they've been saying. The way all this ends up is that they uh, they do go through with making them allow uh, the developers to show you an alternative pay method, but mm-hmm. Epic never gets back in the store. That actually is looking like it's going to happen on December 9th. Yeah. So you but, may get your still, wish on that. But still continuing to uphold and Epic never gets to go back in because they did breach their contract, so shut up. Ha ha. Yeah, I mean, Epic, yeah. I mean, as the judge repeatedly told Epic, they, 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 they didn't have to do this to end up in that courtroom. They, you know, and at all points in time, they had the ability to get their own stuff back in the App Store by stopping breaching Apple's rules. But at this stage, they've done that for so long, Apple have told them to go pound sand. Meh. You know. Unfortunately, it and the harms judge consumers. said that's justified. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately, it harms consumers, but I do enjoy that Epic loses. I have to say, I, I, yes. I mean, I should, I'd like to think I was bigger than that, but no. No. <laughs> Uh, social media developments that caught my eye. Uh, Zoom is trying to find a new monetization strategy. Uh, ads in your Zoom calls if you're a non-paying customer. Not sure I like that. Yeah, that, that do, they do have to the monetize. Category. Yeah. Uh, WhatsApp is creating groups of groups. And obviously because you can't call a group of groups a group, they've had to come up with a synonym for group and they've decided to call that a community. So a community is a group of groups. And the idea is that if you have a large organization like a corporation, you could have one set of administrators controlling the WhatsApp groups representing, say, your finance department or your other departments or whatever. So a bit like you can have different channels within Slack or whatever. You would end up with different groups within communities within WhatsApp. So it's an interesting idea. Yeah. And also on the WhatsApp bandwagon, um, you can now have multiple devices at the same time in your WhatsApp about sodding time. <laughs> Welcome to the 20th century. Um, that that yeah. is one of the main things that kept me from using it was this pain of having to go, oh, now you want to be on that device? Okay, well, you got to get out on this device in order to get that device. It's like, why was that ever a restriction? That doesn't make any sense. It's some that sort of technical debt. You to use it. 
Yeah. You know, it's t- it's technical debt of some sort that they finally yeah. paid down. Someone made a very bad choice very, very early on in the product's history, and it's been biting them ever since. Anyway, fixed at last. <laughs> um, Signal have added some anti-spam features. Um, you can report abuse and so forth. It seems nothing earth-shattering, just seems sensible. Um, and Instagram is testing a feature to tell people to get off Instagram. Right. Really? Yeah, they're they're experimenting, so we shall see how the experiment goes. But basically, you've been doom scrolling for too long. Maybe you should take a break. Obviously, worded <laughs> slightly slightly nicer than that, but that is the idea. And also in the bucket of interesting experiments, YouTube are experimenting with getting rid of the dislike as a visible thing because that encourages people piling on, but keeping hmm. the dislike as a signal that is visible to just the owner of the video and to the YouTube algorithm. Well, wait a minute. If I can't see the dislike button, how do I click it for the dev- the person who made the video to know I disliked it? No, no, okay. It? No, no. It's the count you can't see. So you retain the button, but you can't see the fact that oh. five million people have disliked this. So that piling on effect doesn't happen. That's a really interesting idea. But you'd still it be able is. to see the likes? You will still see the likes and you will still see the count on those, but you, will only, you won't see the negative stuff. Hmm. But you can still register the fact, which helps the algorithm pick out dodgy stuff. Okay. And is potentially useful feedback to sure. the creator. So yeah. it's an interesting halfway house. I, I am curious to see how the experiment goes. Yeah, I like the so idea. you like deep dives and we don't actually have yes. that much uber spectacular news. So I have two for you. Oh, goody. So the first one, we get to talk about something called the Trojan source attack, which is a whole new, it's not so much a vulnerability as an idea. Basically, no one had thought, what if, and then someone did think, what if, and they went, oh my God, that would be terrible. So this all involves the Unicode standard of all things. So Unicode is the thing that gives us, you know, before Unicode, we had ASCII, where we basically just had the letters and one or two accented characters, you know, and a few symbols, but it was a very, very small character set. And then as more and more people joined the internet, uh, it became more and more important that all of these special characters could be represented. And by pure accident, silly icons got mixed into the mix too. <laughs> and Unicode is the overarching standard we now use to manage all of our textual representations. Unicode is vast, absolutely vast. So it covers all, all languages, all you know, Cyrillic and Chinese and Japanese yeah, and Korean whole, characters. And the whole kit and caboodle. Absolutely. And the barf emoji. And the barf emoji. Yep. Just just for okay. fullness. And all the mathematical symbols you've ever dreamt up in your entire life, they're all in Unicode. It is huge. And some languages, well, you know, a lot of, not a lot of, the majority of languages you read left to right, there are languages you read right to left, like Arabic and Hebrew. And they are also represented within Unicode. Now, most of the time, a document is in a single encoding all the way through. And so it will be in a single text direction all the way through. But it is entirely conceivable that you would want to write an essay about the thoughts of Arabic scholars, and you may wish to quote Arabic within your English essay. So you actually do need a way of saying, I am now starting a right-to-left section. I am now ending a right-to-left section. So there so are special like, characters. So like putting in code or something. You want to say code, here's the thing, and stop code. Well, yeah, exactly. So they're basically invisible formatting characters, like the enter key. Well, I guess the enter key is slightly visible in the tab key, but it's that same sort of a thing, right? It's a key that tell that 
that that is about this. It's a control key. And so there are these special characters for flipping between left to right and right to left. Um, and compilers that turn computer code into, sorry, that turn human readable code into computer readable code, they don't have any concept of text direction. They read a file sequentially from top to bottom. So those control characters have zero meaning whatsoever to a compiler. But because most people's code editors and IDEs just use the standard OS or some other framework, they're using someone's API for rendering text, right? They're not writing from first principles a text renderer that implements fonts, right? They're taking some code that knows how to do text and make it bold and italic and red and blue and whatever other syntax highlighting they're doing. And any library you pick up these days that supports drawing text on a screen is Unicode aware, which means it will obey the right-to-left characters, not because IDEs or code editors need it, and not because anyone ever thought of characters going backwards in a code editor, but because the code editor is using APIs that assume that all Unicode should work. Okay, I don't see what the problem with that is yet. So the human being looking at some source code does Mm -hmm. not see what the compiler actually making the code into computer code sees. So I could see if x less than 5, but I am being tricked into seeing that by having part of that go right to left. It actually says if 5 less than x. I have now inverted the meaning of a line of code. Humans reviewing that code will never see that this code does the opposite of what their eyes are telling them. So if I'm malicious, I can can invert logic. I guess I, I... It, this must be something that just because I don't know what compiled and uncompiled code looks like that I don't see why it would look differently. If it's not X about looking. So, so you, the human, will see, will see text which the computer interprets the other way around. Forget about compiling, whether it's interpreted or not. So you, you see if X is less than 5 and the computer sees if 5 is less than X. But how does it see wins. if... How does it see if five is less than X? Because it has hidden characters that are telling no. it to go the other direction? Yeah. Okay, so your your viewer obeys right to left. So your viewer Le- has left flipped to right. those characters. Wait. Right to left? Yes. Or- so normally you're reading left to right. Yes. But someone okay. has messed with your source code and inserted the special characters to say, and this bit goes right to left. So you're looking at the if statement, and you are seeing it backwards. Oh. The computer is not fooled. The computer is interpreting the characters in the order they appear in the text file, and the order they appear in the text file is 5 less than x. And what you're seeing is x less than 5. Okay. Why don't I see the special characters that tell it which direction to go? Well, because special characters aren't shown... They're just obeyed by a text renderer, right? Your browser, your 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 UI, your code editor is behaving like Notepad or Word or anything else in your OS that takes a string of text and displays it. It's obeying the Unicode. Okay. Hmm. So what you see is in a different order to the actual ones and zeros in the text file. Okay. So All you right. reviewing the code do not see what the computer sees. But if I'm a good coder and I'm using a version control system, it would know that they were different, wouldn't it? Well, well, okay, but your version control system is going to display text to you. Yeah, but it's going to tell me that I've got two lines that are not the same. 
No, it's going to obey. It's going to show you the diff. So you get submitted a pull request for some new code. And what you see is if X is less than five. It's actually a five is less than X, but your Git client. Oh, I'm sorry. I was thinking that I had it in there as uh, five is less than X and someone changed it to X is less than five by sending these control characters. Then I would see a diff that would tell me it had been changed. You would see a very confusing diff because you would say if X is less than five has been changed to if X is less than five. Yeah. Okay. Right. 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 But at least I'd have a hint. But in this case, I didn't write any of it at all. Yeah. Hmm. And you could disguise that by adding a comment on the end of the line. And then you would say, oh, there's a diff on this line. Oh, yeah. The comment was added. Well, that was very nice. <laughs> right. But okay. it gets even worse because you can nest the change of order characters in such a way that you have text that is completely invisible. It is in there, it will be interpreted by the compiler, and it will not be visible on your screen. So you, the human, are now unable to see the code your software actually executes. How does it do that? It involves nesting a left and right inside a right to left, so you end up putting characters, quote-unquote, on top of each other, which means they actually get hidden. A double negative? (laughs) Yep. Huh. That's nice. Yes. So this sounds bad. But the thing is, there's a very, very, very easy fix here. Just flick the little, you know, you're using an API to render the text. Tell the API to ignore direction characters. And hey, presto, you now see what the computer sees. So it is literally a case of a one-line setting in every code editor. So it's just in the code editor. And I don't have to do anything as a developer. Correct, correct. So the person who maintains... So this is, okay, the key is don't use software, don't use software to write software that isn't under active support. <laughs> right? As I recall, when we first saw this article, uh, the vast majority of groups that create code editors said, yep, going to fix that. And then some didn't respond at all to the, to the um, people who responsibly disclosed it. Uh, my memory is that all the important people responded and that a whole bunch of important people were given advance notice through responsible disclosure. So a lot of the really big stuff was fixed in advance, including GitHub. Maybe I was uh, just so obsessed with GitHub being fixed because all the open source code in the world hangs in there. Maybe that's why I why ignored would Github, it. Why would GitHub have to be changed? It's so that when I editor. see a pull request, I actually see the real pull request? It's not. I thought you said it was only in code editors. Okay. Does GitHub show you code? Yes. If you do a pull request, does it show code? Yes, it does. Then it has to be updated. Anything that shows a human code has to ignore those characters. Okay. So any version control system would also have to. Yeah. Any a version control system, a code editor. If a human being's eyeballs look at the code, they have to be looking at it without reverse characters being possible. Because otherwise they could be tricked. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. I was just scanning through the, so you linked to the Brian Krebs article, which I thought was the one I read that talked about what companies didn't didn't respond, but I am not quickly being able to find it. If I run across the answer to my question uh, or to what I was saying, I will jump in. I, I at may a later have point. stopped reading as much detail when Microsoft were on the list of people who were given advance notice and who dealt with the problem, because that means VS Code and GitHub are working, and so I'm happy. <laughs> and it's all about you, right? <laughs> it's all about me. <laughs> to some extent, me. yes, in this case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Oh, here At we go. We met a a one. Here it is. Here's the quote. We met a variety of responses ranging from patching commitments and bug bounties to quick dismissal and references to legal policies, the researchers wrote. Of the 19 software suppliers with whom we engaged, seven used an outsourced platform res- for receiving vulnerability disclosures. Six had dedicated web portals for vulnerability disclosures. Four accepted disclosures via PGP encrypted email. Two accepted disclosures via only non-PGP email. They all confirmed receipt of our disclosure and ultimately nine of them committed to releasing a patch. So nine of 19 committed. 11 of the recipients had bug bounty programs offering payment, but of these only five paid bounties, blah, blah, blah. So only half of the organizations maintaining the effective computer programming language contacted have promised patches. Others are dragging their feet. Ah, now I'm more depressed than I was initially. I guess I was over. I guess I was over selfish. Well, it it might have been. Uh, it might have been later on that that more information came out because still in this article it says we also expect action from GitHub, GitLab, and Atlassian, so their tools should detect attacks on code and languages that still lack bitty character filtering. That's what it's called. The fix. I guess I, I didn't mm-hmm. notice that particular. I'm wondering if that article has been updated since I read it. Um, either way. It is thankfully an easy fix. Just ignore those bloody characters. Yeah, I hope Atlassian does it. They're the ones who make Source Tree, and yes. uh, Source Tree is is popping up an error saying this is using an a, a, a deprecated version of Python. So that concerns well, me a little bit. That's heartening. And by heartening, <laughs> by heartening, I mean disheartening. Yeah. All right. Mm. Yes. So anyway, that is that is the uh, the, the fix. Um, and I would say this is one of those don't panic ones because as well as doing the responsible disclosure up front, they also scanned all of GitHub to a- to answer the obvious question: Were we the first to think of this, oh. or has this actually been going on for years oh, yeah. without us knowing it? And the good news is the whole of GitHub is clear. They found a few false positives, which when they looked into were down to buggy encoding. And not actually an attempt to be malicious, just ignorance. <laughs> Stupidity versus malice, which is, you know, that often happens. Yeah, right, right, right. The, um, the article that we're talking from, by the way, is 13 days old as of right now. So I imagine more has come out on that, on uh, when, whether people... Yeah, although updated. it's gone very quiet in the media front, because this story broke within days of us recording last, and it was all over the headlines for a day, and then it just did that thing that news does, just vanished. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, the, that is uh, I, the other thing is you know how much does this affect you? Well, if you if the only code you read is code you wrote, unless you're trying to trick yourself, you have nothing to worry about. The people who I think need to be on really high alert are the people who accept pull requests in from the general public, right? Not from trusted colleagues, but from randomers. So people like me. Um, we need to be on our guard to make sure that the tools we're using are actually showing us the reality of what is being sent to us in pull requests. Yeah, yeah. So, I find pull um, requests terrifying. I have one standing, and it, it's from someone I trust and know, and I've just been sitting there going, "I'm afraid." <laughs> well, remember with Git, you can always go back in time. So, if, it, if if everything explodes, you can always go back to previous previous conditions. Yeah, I, I'm sure it's fine. I just. Haven't done okay, it enough. So, so that is our first deep dive. And our second deep dive, it turns out, we now know, is a fun story. But when it broke, it could have been a very scary story. So uh, oh, okay. you've probably heard about those emails from the FBI. Certainly in the last 24 hours, yes. 
That, yeah. that just broke, right? That did just break. And thankfully, if we'd been recording yesterday, I would have been like, I don't know what's going on. This is potentially very worrying. But now I can go, no, this is fine. This is actually a slightly fun story. Oh, good. And Brian Krebs, actually, there's a unique, th- th- there's something that ties everything together. Brian Krebs gave us all the answers, too. Okay, good. So, twice in a row. Twice in a row, yeah. Good on, good old all Brian. Right. I've been a huge fan for years. So over the weekend, a bunch of US sysadmins received emails... And they genuinely did come from the FBI's email infrastructure. So all of these modern technologies we have for proving the authenticity of email like DKIM and SPF, all of that checked out. The emails really were from the FBI's mail server. And I'm phrasing that very carefully because they weren't from a human being in the FBI, but they were from the FBI's email servers. So they validated as being genuinely from the FBI. They were sent to sysadmins. And it looks like they scraped the registry of who owns what IP addresses to get those email addresses. And particularly, they took the registry for North American IP addresses, RN. So that means that you're guaranteed to get nerdy techie people, which is good targeting of your phishing email when you're going after, as you're going to see, you know, sysadmin types. So the emails contained impressive technobabble that, frankly, the creators of Star Trek will be proud of having come up with. Um, A a sample. Our intelligence monitoring indicates exfiltration of several of your virtualized clusters in a sophisticated chain attack. We try to black hole the transit nodes used by this advanced persistent threat actor. However, there is a huge chance he will modify his attack with fast flux technologies which he proxies through multiple global accelerators. And he reversed the polarity. No, sorry, I made that last bit up. (laughs) Now, that sounds really good, except the FBI wouldn't have said he. (laughs) The FBI wouldn't have said he, and none of those words make sense in that order. That is absolute garbage. That is absolute What is fast flux? Correct. You can make it up. You are free to define what it is. I think we should it's start available. using it. Yeah, I think it's it's when you turbo boost your uh, flux capacitor in your DeLorean, right? That must be it. Yeah, so you go back in time faster. Or do you go forward? Uh, anyway, so it, it's absolutely good. Wait, wait, wait. No, it is a real word. Fast flux is a DNS technique used by botnets to hide phishing and malware delivery sites behind an ever-changing network of compromised hosts, at, hosts acting as proxies. Yeah, I'm not sure they meant it in that way, but I guess it's not surprising someone named something Fast Flux because it's a bloody good name. Yeah. I like it. Anyway, so it's it's a garbage email. It, it means nothing. And what was really weird was that it didn't contain a call to action. Oh, like you must patch this blah, 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 or contact normally, this company. Or- yeah, normally, if someone was being malicious, if, if a malicious person had access to the actual FBI's actual mail servers, they have the ability to send the world's best spear phishing, which would involve some sort of go here, phone this number, send us something. It would involve some sort of call to exploit yourself, right? Right. If there really was this big problem. Well, no, if the person exploiting the problem was malicious. No, but I'm saying either way, if it was malicious or real, if it was real, they would have told you to do something. That is also true. And also there would have, yeah, it, it doesn't add up to the way the actual FBI, as someone said on Twitter very succinctly, the only emails from the FBI you need to worry about are the ones that start, please contact Special Agent X at Y as soon at your earliest convenience. <laughs> Apparently that is the phrasing they use. Okay. 
So that, no, the whole thing doesn't add up. Uh, the other thing also, they literally named a guy as being the malicious actor. I, I have intentionally not mentioned the oh. guy's name because he's an actual okay. security researcher. And the original reporting was from Bleeping Computer and they named the guy, which I thought was really unfair. So the link I have in the show notes is to Naked Security, who redacted his name, and to Brian Krebs, who doesn't mention it for the so same the, reason. You're saying this is a, a, a real security researcher? Oh, that's right. right. So, well, you haven't gotten to that part of it, that this is actually trying to attack somebody. Well, it isn't. That was one of the theories. That is, that is not what actually happened. Okay. So... When this all happened, the fact that there was no call to action left the entire internet scratching its head. Like, why? Why would someone do this, right? Are they trying to DDoS the FBI by getting lots of phone calls from confused sysadmins? Apparently they did succeed in doing that. Um, the, the FBI phone lines were difficult to get through to, and they were inundated with calls from very confused sysadmins. Was it some sort of attack on the character of this actual security researcher? Not a particularly credible attack, but maybe he was about somehow getting their own back or besmirching them. Well, Brian Krebs has the actual answer. And it turns out that a security researcher who has chosen to remain anonymous and who the colour of whose hat we do not know, whether they are black hat who's had a conscience, grey hat or white hat, but they don't fancy being known for having found a problem on the FBI's website because the (laughs) FBI are not known for liking people who poke at their stuff. So they wanted to draw the FBI's attention to a really dumb setting on one of their public websites. And they wanted to do it in such a way that they could remain anonymous, but that the message would definitely get through. And they seem to have chosen with clickbait viral headlines will do the trick. Huh. So how did this this uh, this email that went out to all the uh, sysadmins result in them highlighting a, a problem in their co- in the FBI's code? Because the fact that it was possible to send those emails is because of the bug trying to be highlighted. Oh, but it didn't tell them where that bug was. Well, that it apparently told them, them enough succeeded. because they closed it down pretty darn quickly. The FBI's response is, "Yeah, we've taken that server offline," which they have. Okay. So they, as well as sending out these emails, they also contacted Brian Krebs from the same email address to prove they are who they say they are. So, Wait, and they the same email address being the FBI, the email FBI address? address. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Right. So that way, Brian Krebs has can tell that this is the same person, right? He sent out both sets of emails because whoever they are, they genuinely have control of an FBI email address. So the obvious yeah. question is, how? How right. do you get control of a real FBI email address? Right? <laughs> right. So you might imagine it involves cracking a password or one of the many password leaks or social engineering or malware or spear phishing. Nothing even half as exciting. Really old, really, really bad JavaScript. Oh, really? Like it's they, old... just a server they forgot about? Yeah, so... It is an old website on an FBI server that still says it works best in IE, which gives you some sort of idea of its vintage. When was that a normal thing to put on a website? This page works best in IE. So it it is not just normal. It is normal and correct that if you have a web form that accepts information from the general public and then acts on it in some way, that all of the validation... And any email it might send will be done on the server side. 
so that you can make sure you're not doing something inappropriate, right? You don't trust a browser because the browser is in control of the person viewing the website. You and I have opened up the developer tools and changed what a website does from within the browser. So Mm -hmm. only an absolute moron would put the code for creating the emails in JavaScript on the front end. (laughs) Fortunately, the FBI fall into that category. So what exists on their server is a URL that will accept a web request, be it an AJAX or a form submission, that contains two parameters, subject and message. It will do no validation on either of those parameters. It will use those to make an email and send it from the FBI's official email server. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So So basically... In the naive days, then. In the naive days. So once this guy found the URL... He could just send any email he wanted by either using the developer tools in his favorite web browser, by using curl on the command line, by writing an Ajax query in a fancy little web form of his own making. Like anything that can submit an HTTP request can send email from the FBI. It's just a colossal, like a relic, a fossil of the bad, bad old days of the early internet. And so he found it. They're still going to arrest him and prosecute him. You know that, right? What the, assuming he he does not succeed in remaining as anonymous as he'd like to, yeah, probably. But no, I thought he said he's it. been named. No, he in anonymously contacted Brian Krebs. You said two different articles gave, put uh, gave his name. No, no, the name of the security researcher mentioned in the emails. Oh, so the email, the fraudulent e- the the. the Ficti- the non the fake email mentions that the attacker in this fictitious attack with all the techno babble is a person who really oh. exists on planet Earth. That's just mean. It is just mean. I think it's meant as a joke because it's quite clearly not serious. But I'm not sure everyone got the joke. Yeah, the FBI is known for their sense of humor. <laughs> I still remember my first trip to the states. It was shortly after 9/11, which may have something to do with it. But there were very very large signs at the airport saying we do not have a sense of humor. Those signs were accurate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. So yeah, so uh, don't write don't write code that will send an email to anyone anywhere from the from you without any validation. <laughs> don't do that. Yeah, well, I, you, we got to give them a little bit of uh, a little bit of slack that you would have written that twenty years ago. Yeah, whenever IE was still an acceptable thing to say. Please use IE for the best experience. Exactly, exactly. So uh, we should give them a, a bushel of uh, garbage for not uh, taking it down and not knowing it was there. That's their. That's on them. But having written in the first place, wow. Well, that's a, that's a good news story in the end. It is exactly. But at the, at first, it was very concerning. It's like, oh my god, someone's broken into the FBI. But they hadn't really. They just found. They just found a wide open back door. <laughs> it's wide open. There was no breaking and entering. Just, Tell yeah, me what really. to do and I will do it. Exactly. So I love it. Well, by, no matter by, what color their hat is, it's got a white brim on it now. Exactly. Exactly. It's gonna you know, it's it's gone off being all black to being at least a tiny shaded grey. <laughs> exactly. So by pure coincidence, you and I were both at mentioned in a tweet from one of our listeners. Uh, they retweeted a tweet from a Dutch person. Um, apparently, if you hack the Dutch government, 
using their responsible disclosure and so forth, sorry, not maliciously, if you if you tell the Dutch government in a proper way that they have a security vulnerability, they will actually send you a T-shirt that says, I found a vulnerability. What's the actual wording no, you probably it have says, in front of you there? So it, th- let me read the tweet because the tweet is great. Uh, Shai Einstein wrote, uh, so I notified the Dutch cert that a Dutch ship was using a satellite router with a default password and it was exposed to the internet. They notified me that the vulnerability was mitigated and asked for my address to send me a t-shirt. At first I was worried, but today I I received the shirt. And the shirt says, I hacked the Dutch government and all I got was this lousy (laughs) t-shirt. I think that is so wonderful that they are prepared to to deal with security in such a grown-up and responsible way. And this kind of tweet just encourages more people to say something. Right? Oh, yeah. I, I want a shirt. That'd be yeah. Great. <laughs> Thanks so you for sending that over. That was that was fantastic. So yeah, good. Made, made both of us smile. And basically, I read it so quick. I read it pretty much straight away. And then, like, you know, the next time I looked at my phone, there was a message from Alice saying, you have to put this in the show notes. It's like, yep. Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's uh, there are two deep dives. Um, we do have some, some news. Um, so first up, action alerts. Patch Tuesday. Okay, I feel like a stuck record here. Microsoft patched a whole bunch of stuff. Two of them are zero days in active exploitation, and another two of them, or was it four of them? Another chunk of them were not zero days, but are also being actively exploited. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch on your win- on your Microsoft stuff. One of them is against Excel, actually, so it's not just Windows, it's Office 2. Oh, okay. And an interesting side note... Today, it is possible, if you are prepared to hand over vast wadges of cash, to get a fully supported version of Windows 7 or Server 2008 or 2, even though for regular plebs, support ended back in January, was it January 2020 or 2021? Oh, wow. Yeah. But for regular folks, Windows 7 has been dead for some time. I think it was 2020. Mm -hmm. But if you pay enough money, they have been providing support and every year the price has been doubling because they really have been trying to get people off these legacy OSs. So literally the price doubled every year. Uh, Well, there is now an end in sight. The last update is an update to the software updater for the obsolete OSs. And as part of that update, they have made it clear that there is no possibility to purchase extended support beyond January 2023 for Windows 7 and January 2024 for Server 2008 or 2. Which is... I really, really wonder come what on, happens in, in big companies because, I mean, just so many cases in my old company where they'd be running OSs that were 10, 15, 20 years old and they would have some reason why they it was too hard. <laughs> well, this is, they've had two years of paying through their nose for it. They have two more years to pay even more through their nose for it, but then it really is over. Yeah, the problem is the people making the decisions of it's too hard to change are not the people who pay the bills. Or it's not their money, they don't care, yeah. That's Someone what I mean, budget. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, there is now yet another deadline. We shall see, uh, at some stage the hardware dies, right? <laughs> at some stage the hardware falls out from under these servers. Uh, but yeah, anyway, that's where we stand with Windows 7 and 2008. Uh, Apple were also busy releasing security updates. Since last we spoke, we have had tvOS 15.1, iOS and iPadOS 15.1, watchOS 8.1, and macOS Monterey 12.0.1. And we got updates to the other legacy operating systems, not legacy, the not shiniest that are still getting security updates proactively. So that obviously is uh, Catalina, Big Sur, 
but also in this new universe, iOS 14.8.1 and iPadOS 14.8.1, and then also Safari 15.1 for all of the various uh, still-supported operating systems. And our friends in Windows land got a very nice update to their iCloud. Yes, it has security updates, but they've now gone to 13 and they have gotten support for a bunch of new image formats, including HEIF or HIEF or whatever that new one is that Apple use instead of JPEG these days to get higher dynamic range. Uh, Anyway. Oh, I forget the name of it. Yeah. The nice photos that come out of your iPhone. Uh, so basically, they've and they've also improved the password manager they they recently added into iCloud for Windows. So it seems like it size. So for iCloud on Windows, a security update, so patchy, patchy, patch, patch. But you actually get some features too. So there you go. So I apologize for sticking this in now, but just as you were talking okay. about doing this, uh, talking about the security updates, I remembered I started to read an article and I didn't completely understand it, and then I forgot about it. Um, the day before yesterday, Ars Technica posted an article entitled Apple isn't actually patching all the security holes in older versions of Mac OS. And they gave a specific patch uh, that where Big Sur got the fix 234 days before Catalina got the uh, the fix. Yeah, Apple triage bugs and always have. What do you um, mean? Particularly for the older operating systems, they don't always patch them straight away. They they patch the stuff that's being actually exploited rather than the stuff that could one day be exploited. So here's the uh, the opening line that might say it's not that. News is making the rounds today, both via a write-up in Vice and a post from Google's threat analysis group of a privilege escalation bug in macOS Catalina that was being used by a well-sourced and likely state-backed group to target visitors to pro-democracy websites in Hong Kong. And this was the vulnerability that wasn't, uh, that wasn't patched in Catalina, and it was patched it in, in Big Sur. Wasn't patch or isn't patch? Were they slower or it never got patched? 234 days later. Right, but it is patched. Yes. But so it's actively is, being it's it was actively being exploited. Which is why they patched it. For the older operators. No, 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 no. They patched it in Big Sur. I know. And and then waited so so it yes. was being actively uh exploited. And yet they but, didn't fix it in Catalina. I Okay, the way I read what you said is that when it became clear that it was being actively exploited, then it got the patch everywhere. That's Initially, not what that it says. That's not what it says. It, it, it is ambiguous on that point. So, okay, it so was, my general it was, understanding has been that Apple are slow to patch the old operating systems, but when, the, when it becomes a real problem instead of a hypothetical problem, so not a vulnerability, but something being actually attacked, then all of a sudden they get their skates on. We don't know from what this says whether that's the case or not. It is ambiguous on that point. Um, okay. Um, so I, I think a lesson is that if you're running older versions of the OS, don't assume that you're getting security updates at the rate you would be if you were on the modern uh, operating system. Yes. I Yes. Yes. That is that is, that is a very good takeaway. Case. Yes. That is a very good takeaway. If it gets bad, Apple will act for you, but they may not act until it gets bad. They'll be slower. They're, they're not as... You're not yeah. a high priority. This appears to be news, so it might be more than what you're saying. Even more than what you're saying. So I'm, I'm going to pop it in the show notes, too. Okay, well, people can read what they want. That, that's my interpretation in an off-the-cuff first guess. Um, but yes, we shall, we shall have to have a read. But anyway, you're right, Alison. The answer, the, 
the real takeaway is if you want the shiny, stay current. Not the shiny, the secure. The safe, yeah. The, the, yes. Yes. The, the, the first class right. service. The, uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, okay. so th- yeah, thanks for throwing that in. Um, I haven't done any homework on it, so I guess... Yeah, I'll stick it in here and we'll have a read. Yes. In terms of worthy warnings, there's a, a lot of people making some really good... I, I don't like to make this section too long because then people tune out, but I'm like, yeah, I can't cut that out. No, I don't want to cut that out either. Anyway, um, I'll be quick about some of them. A good reminder from Brian Krebs, tis the season for wayward package fishing. So the whole way through the pandemic, people have been pretending to be couriers to trick people into doing things. Well, that that is always twice as bad as normal at Christmas time. Well, we're back into the mm. holiday season. We're still in the pandemic. Really, if something pretends to be from a courier, even if you're expecting a package, keep the old filters up because <laughs> there is proactive exploitation going on here. I forget who reasons. talked about it in uh, in our Slack at podfeet.com slash Slack. I want to say it was Marty Gensius, but I I could be misquoting. Um, he said that he... he or, oh, no, it was when I posted about um, me getting fished a second time from somebody pretending to be C-Panel. Twice in a row, I fell, or twice inside of a year, I fell for the same phishing attack. Luckily, nothing went wrong. But uh, anyway, this person said in response to that, that one of their ways of training themselves to never click links is when they get an email from Amazon telling them that their that their package is coming or that their their uh, their order is complete, they don't even click that link. Like, if you can keep yourself from clicking the Amazon uh, email that you were completely expecting, then you can keep yourself from clicking all of them. I thought that was good advice. That is, uh, that it, and, and it takes discipline. I, I, I approve. Um, another one to be aware of, now that we're in the midst of what I think we've decided to christen the Great Resignation, um, scammers are using fake job ads to steal identities. And then in some cases, use those to actually sign up uh, for for unemployment benefits as you, because they've basically stolen enough information to pretend to be you. So the thing to watch out for is job advertisements that look too good to be true and then ask you for lots of information up front. Because nothing's going to come after the lots of information up front. Interesting. So they're asking for social Social security Security. number? Yeah. Oh, wow. Before... A job offer, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, they're they're putting up a stupidly high annual salary to lure you right in. And then, oh, yeah, just tell us your social security number and then we'll get you right onto that interview. It's like, no, there's not going to be an interview. There's not going to be a job. They just wanted your social security number. Just, you know, wow. yay, bad people. <laughs> um, Because we're all working from home and because we're probably all more stressed because we're missing that human-to-human contact that helps us all, you know, hear tone of voice and all those kind of things, I think a lot of workers are on edge that their manager thinks they're slacking or whatever. And preying on that are a bunch of email scams that pretend to be irate customers, telling you if you don't do X, Y, or Z, I'm going to get you in trouble with your boss. And a lot of people are already nervous about that. So their brains may be turned off. And they may be more inclined to click on a link, do a thing, etc. Oh, wow. Yep. Uh, Brian Krebs then highlighted a new technique. So we know phishing is when you send an email looking for someone to do something. And then when people started using voice, we, we invented the word vishing, 
by taking the V from voice and sticking it on the front of phishing, so it became vishing. <laughs> and then they started using SMS, so we called it smishing, because it sounds cool. I kind of like smishing. I haven't heard of any of these. Okay. So now we have a new technique where the attackers combine voice and SMS. So they send you an SMS message pretending to be your bank as a pretext for then phoning you pretending to be your bank. And it just helps people put their shields down. So you get an SMS and then you telling you I'm going to be calling you and then you get the phone call and you're like, oh, well, it must be real because I already got the, the SMS. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, oh, wow. yeah, exactly. So neither of them are any more real than each other, but your brain does that thing you just said, right? That That is, again, preying on human nature, which is what all of this evil stuff is about. It's, you know, preying on our squishy organic bit. So, you know, th- these things are getting more sophisticated, you know. Just because they do two things you can't verify doesn't make it any more verifiable than one thing you can't verify. You still can't verify it. Uh, and then a good example from India, which you can which you can take in two ways, actually. So it is a fact that Apple's activation lock is extremely effective at depriving thieves of the use of Apple devices. If your device is activation locked and someone steals it, you are deprived of it, but so are they. And for this very obvious reason, it has been the the desire of bad guys for a very long time, well, for years now, since uh, activation lock became a thing, to find a way of tricking the person whose phone you've just stolen into telling you their Apple ID username and password. Oh. Because then you can remove activation lock. And... This is basically an Indian influencer who has a lot of audience had this happen to them and therefore it has made a lot of news, but it serves as a really good illustrative example. So the person's phone was stolen and they turned on lost mode to make sure their data was safe and to pop up a message saying, if you find this phone, call me, you know, because you don't know if it's lost or stolen, right? So you just do the the find my thing. The attackers used this lost mode information to fish, they pretended to be Apple, oh. saying, we have found your lost blue iPhone 13 Pro because, well, they know it's blue in an iPhone 13 Pro. They stole it. <laughs> right. right, right. <laughs> so they pretended to be Apple and they got the person to hand over the Apple ID and password. And then the phone was all of a sudden on activation locked and actually stolen. Wow. So if you lose an Apple device. Apple's no, not no. going to call you. <laughs> precisely know that the bad guys are going to try trick you into giving over your apple id how is going to depend from attacker to attacker but if it was malicious they're going to try so just shields up right forewarned is forearmed and then lastly what could have been a really bad news story i actually think is kind of a good news story well not a good news story that's being too kind but it's it's not bad so Robinhood is a pretty major online trading site where you sort of buy shares of shares, uh, which means that people who aren't made of money can play on the stock market and lose the money they don't have or whatever. Anyway, it, it, it's quite popular and a lot of people's real money is in Robinhood. So when I heard it data breach at Robinhood, I did not think this was going to end well. Thankfully, it turns out that Robinhood's procedures seem to be quite good because they detected very quickly something had gone wrong, acted immediately, and frankly, they deserve amazing credit for their very transparent blog post announcement. So 
They have lost the kind of information that makes people potentially susceptible to phishing. They haven't lost credit card information. They haven't lost social security numbers, but they have lost email addresses and names. And the fact that Hmm. these people are Robin Hood customers. So without context, you could craft a phishing email. Right, right. So it is, if you're a Robin Hood user, it's important to be aware that this information has leaked. But you should also read their blog post because actually they tell you what happened, how it happened, and exactly what the risks and dangers are. And frankly, if you're not a Robinhood customer, have a read because this is how it should be every time there's a data breach. If every company was this transparent, <laughs> yeah, they are going to happen. If every company was this transparent, we would be living in a much better world. And if I were interested in this kind of thing, Robinhood has gone up in my estimation, not down. Now, I'd be more likely to give them my money, but I have no interest in gambling. So I'm interested in rubbing them. <laughs> Thank you for calling it that, by the way. That's what it is. <laughs> I know so many people who, are, who act like it isn't. It's like, yeah, it is. I know people who bet on horses who act like it isn't because they think they have insider knowledge. No, so, you're gambling. Yeah. You know, my, my brother has had the best philosophy ever. He used to play the ponies and he said, I don't think it's uh, either one. I think it's entertainment. So if I win a couple hundred dollars, I buy drinks for everybody because I just bought entertainment. And if I lose, I had fun watching the ponies and that's it. There, yeah. This isn't about making money. This is about entertainment. And then you're like, oh, that's all right. Yeah, exactly. As long as you're you're spending disposable income for fun as opposed to betting the house, all good. Yeah. Um. Yeah, my grandfather for years played the lottery for fun because he, he won a decent amount of money in his 20s and he was wondering, how long do I have to keep playing the lottery until I'm down? <laughs> actually, that's a, so that's a fun game where the, the objective actually is to, to break even in the end. Yeah, and he was well into his 80s before he stopped playing the lottery, and he said, I'm not much up. I think he was up like, you know, a thousand euro or something, but I'm still up. My lifetime, over my lifetime, I'm still up on gambling. <laughs> That's pretty funny. But never looked at it as his money. That was that was found money, right? Exactly, which was great fun. He had a whole ledger and everything. I mean, he was, he, if, he'd, if he'd been into Excel, I'm sure it would have been an Excel sheet, but it was an actual ledger on actual paper, uh, which is fun. But it was great because he had a full history of lottery money and you could see how much he was up and then he was down. Oh, then he's up again. I thought it was fun. (laughs) So, notable news. Facebook are throwing out all of their facial recognition data. I saw that. That is, that's big news. That is big news. And I don't know if it's because it turned out not to be as lucrative as they thought. If it turned out that they actually just don't want the hassle because mm-hmm. it, it it's a magnet for people's attention having this data. And if you're already under the spotlight, maybe you don't want to be under the spotlight for something that isn't actually all that helpful to you. Or maybe the employees rebelled enough that management were like, this is not worth the effort. Or I, We don't know why. But one of the biggest databases of facial data in the world is just going away. And that just seems like a very good thing in these in these modern times, especially for Facebook, of all people, not to have this data anymore seems like a good thing. So, yeah, I don't you know, know why. I, would, I wasn't a big fan you. of facial recognition in the first place, but one of the uh, things that really sticks in my mind was the statistic I heard on the Tech John uh, with Rob Dunwood and uh, uh, Terrence Gaines and... 
the woman I haven't met yet, can't remember, uh, Stephanie is her name. Um, She's going to have to get on the show, Alison. (laughs) She talked about the fact that the um, facial recognition of African-American women is something like 100 or two times, 200 times less accurate in terms of of misidentifying people. And it was like, like black men have it worse than white men. But black yeah. women have it worse than anybody by just orders of magnitude. It's it's, it's, it's a multiplier, crazy. right? Because male to female is already out by a lot. And then you multiply that by another factor to go black to white. It, it's, and I, I think, in fact, it's non-white is bad. And of all the non-whites, black is like, the algorithms are the stupidest. <laughs> and then throw in a female for some reason. Why would a female face be harder than a male face? It doesn't make because any sense. Because the, the no, it's not harder. It's about the data. It's about the training data. Ah, a lot of these, a lot of these things are trained on stuff like the Active Directory database of headshots in a corporation. So you have a tech company run by white men. <laughs> so what's your training data? Yeah, yeah. Well, right. There's other faces out there. <laughs> there are, but a lot of a lot of bad AI comes down to garbage in. I mean, you could look at the at the uh, instructors at some historically uh, black colleges, right, <laughs> and universities. You could use that instead. You could, you absolutely, but you have to be aware it has to occur of the to biases. You. It has to occur to you to de-bias your data. And if you don't, you will end up with biased data. And yeah. there, I mean, I think the worst, not the worst, the most illustrative example is when, oh, it was Amazon. Yes, it was Amazon try to get the human problems out of their hiring by training an AI on their previous hiring decisions. And lo and behold, what the AI did was cement in <laughs> sexism, racism, and all the problems with the human review. They just got a, they automated racism. Okay, I'm sorry. That, that's, that's hilarious. Yeah, and sexism. But yeah, so, you know, a lot, AI isn't good or bad, but God, can it be abused? Well, <laughs> particularly okay. if you give it dirty data. Uh, okay, so notable news. Uh, oh, and it has been a big topic of discussion in lots of places you and I end up. You know, should Apple leave China? Well, Yahoo has uh, taken the decision. Yahoo have exited China. Really? Wow. Due to challenging environment, wow. which is a euphemism for we're so fed up with the stuff the government make us do. So yeah. Yahoo have called it quits. Now, they don't make hardware, so they don't, they're not in up to their neck like a lot of other companies are. But it's, it's interesting. Yeah. And then the last thing that I think is very significant is mobile device management has a new player in the market. Apple. Apple yes. are offering MDM to small businesses. And by small business, they mean any corporation with up to 500 employees. Which, that's not small. Well, yeah, sorry. It is in my world. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is a matter of scale, right? But yes, yeah, so that is that is a that is a significant development, I think. So what is it they're going to allow you to do? So it is basically Apple's version of Jamf or one of these or, but, I mean, or for a version who of, don't know what we're talking about. So I'm mobile not, device management. So the devices end up in a control panel that someone in IT can use to make sure they're always up to date to pre-push down VPN settings, to pre-push down email settings, to pre-push down Wi-Fi settings, to uh, put down security restrictions, like you must have a passcode at least this long, your device must be encrypted, you're not allowed to use get your Wi-Fi networks without a username and password, those kind of things. You can also use it to give people... to 
to provision purchase software purchased by the organization. You can use it to provision private apps because Apple have a, a, a corporation can have their own private app store that's only for their employees. Right. Um, I think they also had a purchase program in this too, didn't they? It's, yeah, volume like yeah, where you VPP. could have a touchless delivery. Yes, uh, you can definitely have a touchless delivery because of how the stuff works under the hood. Um, you can already get that at the moment through stuff like Apple School Manager and Apple Business Manager. But again, this rolls it out into a nice, easy package so that people who don't have giant IT departments can get these kind of cool corporate features without having to be. Because while it's up to 500, it's also perfectly viable for a three-person company, right? As soon as there's more than you, as soon as it's you and at least one other person, and at this day and age, each of you has at least two devices, if not three or four, well, it's actually worth your while having something to, to manage all this for you because it will do things like make sure your apps are patched, make sure your OS is patched. And I think I need this for me. Just yeah, frankly, <laughs> yes. Yes, I, I agree. I, I think a lot of families, actually, if someone did a family plan, I think it would be amazing. Yeah. Because um, that'd certainly be handy for all the family tech support I do. Yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Mom, how how big is the red icon on your phone? How how big is the number? A big. <laughs> it should get bigger, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, big is good, right? It's like no, this is not your lottery winnings. <laughs> this is your level right. of insecurity. Big is bad. Uh, right. But yeah, so it's actually it's very interesting. The Apple come into that market, and if they were ever to do a family product, that would be very very interesting. But for now, they're they're going into the small business market, so that is interesting. Other than that, then, uh, we have no excellent explainers, but we do have two interesting insights I want to highlight. Neither of these are earth-shattering, right? Nothing. There's nothing here that's, that is big news, or it would have been in the news section. But nonetheless, it is interesting to particularly the nerdier, geekier among us. So the first is, every year, Sophos release their threat report. And they call it after the year that's about to come. So this is the 2022 threat report because they look back at 2021 and then project forward. And the idea being it helps people making decisions to decide on how to allocate their 2022 budgets based on our best guess of where things are headed. So it probably comes as no surprise to anyone that 2021 was the year of ransomware. Like, and the statistics in the report make that unbelievably clear. There's a pie chart of the different kind of threats that have actually caused problems among Sophos's customers. And it's 75% a dark navy blue. And when I look at the key, it says ransomware. It's just wow. all ransomware and a few other things happen too. It seems like we go through uh, stages in the last, I don't know, in the last 25 years, it seems like we go through phases of having problems like this be uh, fruitful from a financial standpoint to now people are just messing around, you know, spitting on things. And then it goes back to being financially successful and it seems well, to swing back and forth. It do, It absolutely does because... There's always a re it's a cat and mouse game and the, the, the cat gets better, which I, which is actually the perfect segue into a related story. Uh, Europol uh, did a giant big strike against 12 suspects uh, accused of running ransomware attacks. And so what's going to happen over time, I think it's going to, so far are predicting 2022 is going to be another year of ransomware, but eventually the tide will turn where it won't be financially as lucrative anymore to do ransomware and the attackers will shift their focus to whatever they can make money of. They'll find something new because it's it's pure economics when you're dealing with cybercrime. Yeah. 
uh, you know, Tom Merritt was talking on Daily Tech News Show about the cat and mouse game that's very slowly creeping up like a leopard in the uh, in the woods or in the jungle of uh, uh, public key encryption versus. Uh, Oh crud! All of a sudden, I can't remember what is the uh, the quantum computing being mm. able to to crack it, and then that means we've got to come up with another way to do our encryption. And that cat and mouse game, I am not looking forward to watching. Mm. On the other hand, NIST and so forth already have crypto encryption standards defined, so we're actually more ahead yeah, of the ball than I thought we'd be. But they're both they're both creeping. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not saying I, yes. Fine. I want a winner. I definitely want a winner there. It's I I am not as panicked about it as I would have been two or three years ago. Yeah. But anyway, no, you're right, though it is a cat and mouse game. Um, and it is going to be interesting to watch. The other one then that in some years is fascinating and in other years is a bit ho hum. Apple have an annual transparency report where they tell us how many law enforcement requests they got and what they did with them. And this year's one is pretty by the book. It's it's broadly similar to last year. Uh the Response rate is down. So last year, 80% of the time they replied back to law enforcement with something, you know, some amount of information, not necessarily everything they asked for, but they replied with something. This year, 77%, so a 3% drop. What I am not surprised that the US and China are two of the biggest three countries looking for data. What I am surprised by is that neither of those are the biggest. The biggest is Germany. And they're also one of the biggest privacy advocates. I don't, un- I do yeah. not understand how to combine those two together. I know we have Nasilla Castaways in Germany, so maybe someone can enlighten me in the Slack as to why Germany, being a physically smaller country with a physically smaller population, and being distinctly democratic as opposed to authoritarian, like China, why is Germany doing more requests than the US and China? Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, maybe now, Klaus knows something. Yeah, I hope so. Now, the reason I'm not all that excited about these numbers is because it's an annual report. So it stops on the, 20, the 31st of December 2020. The 6th of January 2021 almost certainly resulted in Apple receiving thousands of requests for data. Because it was all about smartphone tracking and everything to try to figure out who was rioting and trying to take over the country. So right. everyone wanted the stats for January and they're not going to be in the, in the, in this report and Apple didn't make any mention of it. So this basically takes us right up to the cusp of the interesting bit and then stops. So next year's report is the one that's going to be interesting. So, yeah, anyway. that would <laughs> be instructive. Instru- yes, and informative indeed. So with all that, let's cleanse our palates. Um, oh, goody. I have two for you. Um, first off, I was very disappointed that Mac OS X Monterey did not come with a pretty photo. Like, since Apple... You mean the, the wallpaper? Yeah. So since Apple yeah. started naming their OSs after nice places in California, they showed us the nice place in California with an amazing photograph. And, and and a dynamic one that changed over time with the sunset. It's the first time I've ever left the default. 
because I liked him so much. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, I, I started to really, I started to use, is it the pretty picture with the bridge? Is it the pretty picture of the mountains? I started to use that to know what OS I was on and I just really liked them. And they weren't dynamic from day one, but they've been dynamic for a couple of OSs now. And since they went dynamic, I've totally doubled out of them. I think it's so cool to have the nice sunset photos and stuff as it becomes time to go home from work. Um, I just I just really like them. And Monterey had none. I just had this abstract photograph that looks, that frankly looks like Yosemite to me. It looks like one of the valleys in Yosemite, the abstract one. It's nothing to do with yeah, Monterey. It's pleasing, but it's not good. I don't think. I don't even find it pleasing because I, I have a thing against pink. And it has a distinct pink tone. There's uh, nothing wrong with pink. Yeah, I don't like pink. <laughs> um, maybe me being rebellious because I'm supposed to like pink. That might be why. <laughs> it would be stereotypical if you did. It probably would. Um, so some photographers in California decided to remedy this and they took their cameras out and they found a very pretty location in Monterey a very pretty location in Monterey and they took pictures at different times of the day and they assembled them in the right format so we can now have a 4K or a 5K version of a beautiful photograph of Monterey that is dynamic linked in show notes it is installed on all of my updated Macs I have uh downloaded it and I'm about to put it on ever since I saw it in the show notes because that does sound fun. I believe that is Point Lobos. I'm pretty I, sure that's California, where that is. And I, I will bow to your superior knowledge. Which is in the Monterey area and uh, and I've been to Point Lobos. It, I believe it's right near there. Yeah, it's very pretty. Wherever it is, it's very pretty. Um, And then I also like astronomy picture of the day is usually a, a breathtaking photograph or an awe-inspiring video but sometimes it's just something darn useful so initially when i saw this the thumbnail i thought this might be an xkcd style joke but no it's a flow chart designed to actually inform you as opposed to to make you laugh but if you see something in the sky what is it is it moving? Is it not moving? How fast is it moving? Oh. Basically, it will tell you, is it a satellite? Is it an airplane? Is it a planet? Is it a star? It's, what is it? It's just useful for people who aren't that big into astronomy, but see something cool. And it's useful for your crazy uncle who tells you they saw an alien. Because then you can actually say, <laughs> well, actually, no, it was a satellite. <laughs> that sounds fun. Yeah. Well, so that would be fun to look at, though. Yeah. So it's actually practically useful. I thought it was going to be a joke. And I was like, oh. No, it's a tool. I like tools. <laughs> Those are great palate cleansers. I, uh, I'm i going to sit here and watch my desktop change. I'll keep changing the clock on my computer to see if I can get it to change. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know from experience that the one that kicks in about five o'clock Irish time is very pretty and tells me it's home time from work. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's kind of a nice thing. I li- I I've liked that effect, and I I also talked. I think I don't remember where I talked about it, but my mother in law had this beautiful uh, painting that that was made of her grandfather's cabin that he built, of her father's cabin that he built, mm-hmm. and she'd had it as her desktop for a real long time. So we did an upgrade to her system. And I think it was Mojave, and uh, no, it was Mojave. It was Catalina, and. Uh, uh, I was I was going to uh, it automatically left her desktop with the, yeah. the painting of her grandfather's her father's cabin, but then we walked in to look at her husband's computer and it had Catalina and she went, "How come I don't have that? That's really pretty. I want that." <laughs> so rather than this painting that was very emotionally connected to her, she actually chose that instead. It was that that effective. Yeah, w- one of the reasons. 
So I like to use different browsers for different things because it's just easier because you can be logged into different accounts. So you can have like one browser, you do personal stuff and one browser, you do work stuff or whatever. And Mm -hmm. there are many reasons I have fallen in love with Edge from Microsoft. But one of the things is its splash screen is a really pretty picture. Oh, and it's, it's I think it's from the same database of pretty pictures from the Windows 10 splash screen for the login screen. But I mm-hmm. almost like opening my Windows 10 VM just to see what the pretty picture is. I don't like anything after that. I hate using Windows. <laughs> but the pretty picture is genuinely pleasing sometimes. Well, you know, you can put Edge on your Mac, right? Oh, I do. That's what I do. Uh, so on my Mac, oh. Edge is my default browser yeah. for work stuff because I get oh, down okay. the pretty pictures. <laughs> no other all, reason, the, all, the, pretty all pictures. the pretty without the Windows. Yeah. And Edge is actually a good browser. Because it's it really uh, cr- is. It's Chromium without the Google crap. Yeah, I. Whenever somebody says you're going to need to use Chrome for this, I just uh, use, Edge. use uh, Edge instead. Yeah, me too. It's, it's a funny I, world I really we're like in. It. Yeah, yeah. Who would have thought? You know, Microsoft out opening sourcing out open sourcing Google. But swings, <laughs> you know, these things happen. Anyway, that's all I got. Um, as much as I could talk to you forever, um, I have run out of show notes. All right. Well, that sounds good. We'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Indeed. And until then, remember, folks, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that is going to wind us up for this week. Did you know that you can email me at allison at podfeet.com anytime you like? If you have a question, you got a suggestion, just send it on over. You got a review, send it on over. Now, I've left Facebook, at least for now, and starting to feel kind of permanent. I think it's been about a month since I've been there. So if you want to follow my silliness online, the best place to go is to follow me on Twitter at PodFeet. Better yet, though, if you want to have some real geeky fun, join our Slack community like Jill did and join me and Jill and everybody else over at podfeet.com slash Slack. And uh, like I said, the other no- lovely Nocilla castaways, including Bart, are in there. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You can support the show at podfeet.com slash Patreon and even increase your pledge if you like to, like Desmond did. Or you can make a one-time donation at podfeet.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time. Join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.